This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, there is a global economic crisis and it's of extraordinary proportions. We are facing something that we have never faced before. Uh, COVID, of course, is a contributor. Brexit would be a contributor on a local level here. And, of course, the war between, well, the invasion of Ukraine by uh, Vladimir Putin, Putin's war is really also seriously damaging the world economy. There are other factors that contribute. And to talk about them now, we're joined by one of Ireland's leading economists, Jim Parr. Jim has just completed and compiled a report on the property uh, crisis in this country, the Irish private rental market. It's a report compiled for the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers, and it makes for Fascinating, but I have to say frightening conclusions. Jim Power, thank you very much for joining us on the stand. Before we talk about the wider global problem, Jim, I'd like to talk to you about your report and your research into the property market, particularly the lending side of it and the landlord-tenant side of it. What you lay out is A, very readable, which is unusual for an economist, and B, very frightening for all kinds of reasons. Could you summarize your findings in terms of the number of landlords leaving the sector altogether and also on the potential damage, a lack of a proper property situation with affordable apartments and houses could have on foreign direct investment, which is explains our is at the heart of our economic success as a nation. If people coming here to work in tech or pharmaceuticals or whatever can't afford to live here, we're in trouble. And of course, if our own nurses, guards and other civil servants can't afford to to live in cities like Dublin, we're in even deeper trouble. Yeah, thank you very much for that kind introduction, Eamon. Uh, delighted to be back again. Um, the I, I have always argued a few things. One is that uh, housing to me is socially, economically and politically the biggest challenge facing Ireland at the moment. Um, and secondly, I think we need to look at the housing market in the whole 
Uh, it's not just social and affordable. The housing market is made up of social and affordable. It is made up of a rental market and it is made up of owner occupiers, people, you know, who want to buy and own their own houses. So, and within the rental part, then we have two distinct components, which is the institutional part of the rental markets, the big, mainly international investment funds that come in and buy up blocks of apartments and rent them out over time. And the second part of the rental market is the, the sort of private landlord, or some people might disparagingly call them the mom and pop type um, landlord. Okay, so the piece I focused in on was the private rental piece, those you know, private landlords who own maybe one or perhaps 10 properties. Um, and, you know, we all know people, I guess, who are involved in this game to some extent. Um, this report was compiled for the Irish Professional Auctioneers and Valuers and the Irish Property Owners Association. Um, and some people might accuse me of, well, you would say that, wouldn't you, in terms of my conclusions. But uh, I try to be as objective and scientific as possible. Um, I engaged in a lot of desk-based research, looking at data available from the Central Statistics Office, from the Central Bank, um, from the retail, uh, sorry, the Residential Tenancies Board, and also from sources like Sheriff Fitzgerald, DAF.ie. So I compiled a lot of data and research. I engaged in a lot of interviews with people involved in the landlord market. And some of those I know myself personally, so I trust implicitly what they tell me. Okay, and uh, I also looked at some surveys of landlords that have been conducted in recent months. So it's a combination of that sort of approach. And uh, there's, a, there's a few stark messages that come out of it. One is that since 2016, there has been a very significant decline in the number of registered tenancies for private landlords. When you want to rent a property as a private landlord, you have to register that tenancy with the Residential Tenancies Board. So uh, unfortunately, the data we get from the Residential Tenancies Board is still not very timely. We have data up to the end of 2020. Uh, we don't have 2021 yet, but anecdotally, it seems clear to me that the trend that was apparent up to 2020 has continued in 2021. Basically, since 2016, uh, the number of tenancies registered by private landlords has been declining by around 20,000 between the beginning of 2017 and the end of 2020. And in a rental market of roughly just over 190,000 tenancies registered, you know, that is a significant decline. Um, why is that happening? Well, there's a few reasons. One is that the, the taxation and regulatory environment for private landlords um, is becoming more and more onerous. Okay, all incomes are taxed at 52% or whatever one's marginal rate of tax is if you're a private landlord. Um, secondly, and I think this is more significant, the whole regulatory burden and the compliance burden has just become quite dramatic in recent years. And in the report, I have two pages outlining the changes that have been made over the last three or four years. And um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's now a myriad of changes. And private landlords tell me they basically have to hire consultants and legal people now to interpret what they need to do as private landlords. And the third piece then is the, in 2016, the, um, 
introduced um, rent pressure zones. So they looked at housing zone or rental market zones around the country that fulfill certain criteria and they decided they should impose a cap on rental growth um, in those zones. And recently they have amended those rent restrictions. So now rents cannot increase by more than 2% per annum or the rate of harmonized inflation, whichever is the lowest. Okay. So effectively at the moment, there's a 2% cap on rental growth. And of course, for private landlords, they have faced massively increased costs over the last couple of years, has, as has everybody else, yes. uh, you know, operating this economy. Uh, but I think more importantly, there are huge distortions within these rental pressure zones. Um, if I am an existing landlord, okay, and I, I, I am fixed to a certain rent level, um, and it's allowed increase by 2% per annum. But if I am a new landlord entering the market, yes. when I'm starting off, I can then command the market price yes. for rent at that point in time. So it is a result in a situation where there's a dual rental market in same areas. Okay. Yes. And, th and, and the combination of these things at the end of the day is driving private landlords out of the market. And I know landlords are demonized. And um, in my experience over the years, you know, there are bad landlords, there are very good landlords, there are landlords that are in the middle. You just can't paint them all with the same brush. And is that different than any other segment of society? No, it's not. You know, you, you get all sorts of players in there. But the bottom line is that private landlords are exiting the market. And um, this is resulting, it's just exacerbating that shortage of rental supply because some people have argued to me in the last week, well, if private landlords get out of the market, um, the institutional investors will come in and provide the rental property. But one of the problems is there's a huge mismatch between where these private landlords yes. are exiting the market and where institutional investors are prepared to buy. Because institutional investors obviously are only interested in buying blocks. Can, so, yeah, can I ask yeah. you about institutional investors? Um, from a position, I, I have to say, of zero knowledge about what is a complicated subject, it seems wrong to me that, um, well, I think Nama sold uh, stuff to institutional investors. seems wrong to me that people should be making vast profits through renting out accommodation, uh, which is almost a human right to have somewhere to live. Now, I know that Fine Gael and right-wing people will think nobody's entitled to a, a place to live, but I think otherwise. However, the point is this. That institutional investor could be a pension fund, correct? Yes. Or it could be George Soros, who yes. wants to get a few more bob. Is it right, philosophically, is it socially just that people should be living off accommodation, speculating on accommodation, or should the state take responsibility in this area? Or is that a totally false dichotomy? Well, you know, if you, if you think back to the period after sort of 2011, 2012, when the economy was on the floor, when the property market had collapsed, um, when there was no, the banking system had basically disappeared. So there was no investment coming into the Irish property market. 
And, um, you know, the government at that stage encouraged through tax incentives and so on, institutional investors into the market. And since then, institutional investment has become a key part of the delivery of housing, particularly in the rental market. Um, so they were invited in, okay, yep. because there was nobody else that would provide the investment required and provide the housing supply required at this juncture. Um, and it's sort of easy now to turn around and say when some bit of normality has returned to the market that we now start to demonize them. Right. Um, I, 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 I have mixed views on this, to be honest, because number one, we need a supply of rental market because I agree with you. I think the availability of housing should be a fundamental right. Okay. Yes. Um, and be it rental or the ability to buy. And, um, and of course, Thatcher, um, you know, tried to encourage people to buy their council houses. Yes. And she, of course, got demonized for that. But she recognized the importance of having property rights for people. But didn't she also? And funny enough, when she did it, I was living in England and I thought it was great because working class people could aspire to home ownership and all of that. When I thought a bit deeper about it, which takes me a long time because I'm slow. I realized. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I realized that what she, the effect of what she had done was to take public housing out of the public realm, therefore making it harder for poorer people, less well-off people, to get a house. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, with any policy intervention, you have to be aware of the side effects or the law of unintended consequences. Yes. And the rental pressure zones here, there have been significant unintended consequences, even though Ono Brin uh, would argue, and he argued at the launch of this report last week, that he warned the government at the time about some of these unintended consequences. Yes. Um, but every piece of, every change in the um, environment, you know, you need to think about what the unintended consequences might be. And that was one of the unintended consequences. And, and I guess... What she should have ensured was that the state continued to provide yes. um, housing for those who either couldn't or didn't want to buy their properties. Right. So you can't just address one part of the market and ignore the other part. There's no doubt about that. But but I but I do think she did create more of a property owning culture, yes. um, which you know some people certainly would regard as a positive. Here in Ireland, um, if you think about where the housing supply, but particularly rental supply, is going to come from. Um, it's going to come from either these private landlords, it's going to come from institutional investment, and they totally dominate the market, well, significantly dominate the market at this stage. Or thirdly, you know, the state could step in and try and provide. Uh, the state does not have a particularly good record in providing, well, sorry, it did in the past um, I guess if you go back to the sort of 50s and 60s, local yes. authorities had a key role in the delivery of housing. Um, but the the role basically since about 1977 um, and that Fianna Fáil manifesto at the time, um, the whole role of local authorities has been gradually eroded over time and they have now lost the institutional capability of delivering housing. And it's, it would prove really, really difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to build up that institutional capability 
to provide housing again. Yeah, because one of the, one of the features of that budget, because it's the year I came back from England, Jim, was I think no, you didn't have to pay car tax, which I thought was wonderful. I've been dodging it in England <laughs> for about twenty years, <laughs> and, and the other thing was no rates. Yeah, and rates were the the means by which local authorities funded themselves, and that was abolished uh, by that wonderful uh, minister for finance. His name was Donahue, I think. Well, he was the minister for economic development. Yeah, yeah. or I think that was the role at the time. Um, nice man, knew him very well. Died, died last year, so I'd have a lot of respect from. And, and I had this argument with him many times. Yeah, um, over the years about that seventy-seven manifesto. I am unambigu- unambiguously of the view it was a disaster. And from the perspective of local authorities, the funding of local authorities has never got back onto a solid footing again. And I do think local authorities should have a much greater role yes. and independence in terms of meeting housing demand in their own right. um, locality. However, however, and this is for, for all of those people who, who argue that the state should just be driving all of this stuff. Local authorities were very responsible for the delivery of ghost estates. Right. And the reason why was because they were getting massive revenues from development yes. levies. Yes. So they were prepared to build houses everywhere. Um, and, and a lot of housing was built, as you know, in areas that there was no demand whatsoever. But the local authority got the development levy. So it became a source of funding. Yeah. And perhaps that is symptomatic also of that funding crisis that was created back in 1977. So, Eamon, what I'm really trying to say in a nutshell is that, you know, there is a role for institutional investment in the market, whether you like it or not, um, or whether one has ideological problems with it or not, um, they will continue to play a key role in the delivery of housing, and they will continue to bring international capital into the Irish housing market. Hopefully, you know, they will create a more professional um, rental market. Um, but of course, they do need to be regulated. Um, and I would, and one of the things I argued in the report last week was that private landlords needed to be treated in a fair way relative to institutional landlords. And at the moment, um, yes. the, the whole bias is towards, from a tax perspective, the whole bias is heavily leaning in favour of institutional investment. So in in small towns, particularly around the country, you know, and even if you think about um, a, a, an area that's between where both of us live, Eamon, yeah. Black Mines, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's, there traditionally has been a lot of rental property, but that's not typically, you know, roads like Belgrave Road or whatever, yeah. where I lived when I came to Dublin first, th- that's not typically an area where an institutional investor would come in and buy up because they couldn't get a block of properties. So the private landlord will continue and should have a key role to play in the delivery of the housing market. And um, at the moment, as I say, the bias is totally against them. And um, there's so many different issues, but the taxation one and the rental pressure zone one, they're key problems at the moment. And you might say, or listeners might say, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, and this is what I was very conscious of in preparing this report. You know, I looked at a lot of evidence. I spoke to a lot of people. I looked at survey material, which I'm always skeptical about because many surveys are just questions are put in a way uh, to get the answer that you require. But I, I sort of um, 
checked all of this against the evidence out there, what was actually happening. And the reality is private landlords are exiting the market in great numbers. Right. So we need to understand why and we need to decide, um, do we want to arrest that? And I think we do, because I think private landlords will have to play a key role in um, the provision of that rental part of the market. And of course, uh, the rental part of the market is part of the broader housing market. So you can't look at it in isolation for everything else. But I think private landlords will have to have a key role to play. And um, I, th- I, I hope I may have started some sort of political debate last week um, about the treatment of private landlords. And I should also say I am not a private landlord, never have been, never want to be. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, now, Jim, the uh, clearly housing is at the center of our economy and the dilemma our governments, whichever uh, hue they are, are going to have to deal with because it is a major national crisis, as is health. Now, I want to ask you about the world economy and the shocks that it has received in the last six months, shall we say? Well, you'll tell me more precisely, perhaps. It's called the cost of living crisis everywhere. It's shorthand, but what it means, in fact, is diesel up 40%, petrol up 23.9%, electricity up 27%, gas up 50%, 
home heating oil up 90%, bread up 11%, poultry up 7%, milk up 9%, vegetables up 14.4%. All of this, Jim, is terrifying people, not just people who are already struggling, but uh, people who regard themselves as having decent jobs, earning the average uh, national wage. Have we seen an economic time like this before? Because you, you have Brexit, of course, which is a minor matter compared to perhaps the war in Ukraine or the COVID pandemic, which has not yet finished, uh, incidentally. But what are we looking at, Jim, in terms of economic history? Um, I, I, you know, economists and others have really struggled in the last six to 12 months in trying to provide a prognosis for what's going on because it, it is a totally unprecedented period. There's no doubt about that. Um, March 2020, we had the outbreak of the global pandemic. And over the next couple of years, we had huge restrictions to varying degrees around the world coming and going. Um, China in significant lockdown at the moment because of a resurgence of COVID. Um, and, and, and that resulted in two things. One was that the productive capacity or the supply side of many global economies and many global goods was hugely um, distressed by what was going on. Okay. Secondly, you had demand seriously constrained during that period. So a lot of people built up a lot of savings. Then towards the end of last year, when the global economy started to reopen as the vaccine program started to have a positive impact, and we saw this resurgence of demand come up against serious supply side problems, and lo and behold, inflation started to take off. Right. And in January, the sort of common view was that, or the conventional view was that, um, gradually during 2022, um, as supply started to come back on stream, you would start to see those supply chain constraints and difficulties easing. Um, demand, the resurgence would start to level out and that by the end of 2022, things would return to a sense of normality. And then, of course, in February, we had uh, the savage Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and that has totally exacerbated all of those supply side difficulties. And uh, I think few of us realize really just how significant Russia-Ukraine uh, Belarus, those countries are to the supply of a lot of things that are really important. Uh, wheat, sunflower and sunflower oil, um, industrial metals like palladium, nickel, aluminium, um, wheat, of course. So, um, and of course, energy, you know, natural gas, yes. oil and so on. So there's been huge disruption to the supply of all of those things. Um, the cost has increased dramatically. So what was a crisis back in January, a cost of living crisis, has been dramatically exacerbated by the Ukraine crisis. And we're now in a situation where countries are facing uh, the highest rates of inflation in 30, 40 years. Um, central banks are starting to react. We've already seen the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve in the United States, plus a lot of other banks, central banks in Australia, Canada, etc., 
who've already started to tighten interest rates quite aggressively. And the European Central Bank is going to move in July. So interest rates everywhere are rising. Government bond yields are rising significantly, albeit from historically low levels, because government bond markets are now worried about higher inflation. They're worried about central banks increasing interest rates. So government borrowing costs are rising. Um, global commodity markets are still at very elevated levels. Uh, you quoted some of the um, cost of living statistics yes. in Ireland. And the one thing they really have in common is a lot of them are underlying a lot of those increases is what's happening on energy markets. So there is now a serious, serious um, level of global uncertainty. And um, has there been a period? No, I mean, there hasn't been a period like this. Um, for those of us of a certain age, we might remember or have read about in 73 and 79, uh, because of war in the Gulf region, we had two yes. um, oil price shocks. Uh, and that created a phenomenon called stagflation. And stagflation describes an environment where um, inflation is rising and at the same time, economic growth is slowing down. And the problem, of course, is that central banks react to the inflation increasing interest rates and that just exacerbates right. the slowdown in global economic activity and that's where we are at at, at the moment the, the causes are different this time around well one of the causes is a war of course yes. in ukraine but the second cause is the global pandemic which makes this crisis very very different so you know you'd have to say that the global economy at the moment stands on a precipice. There's no doubt about that. And it could go in either direction. Um, you know, the obvious hope would be that central banks will gradually bring inflation back under control without causing a recession. Uh, and that gives rise to a term that I should never use given my history, um, soft landing. But <laughs> the other, the other option, of course, is, um, uh, it could be a much harder landing. So the global risks are really high at the moment. I, I think one of the things we should probably be most concerned about at this juncture is what's happening on the food side. Yes. Um, food price inflation in April was three and a half percent in Ireland. Um, and that's pretty low relative to a lot of the other price increases that you've cited. Yes. But that's the highest rate of food price inflation since 2008. And if you look at the dynamics of global food production, um, Indonesia has uh, put a ban on the exports of palm oil. Um, India has put a ban on the export of wheat. Because of the escalation in fertilizer prices, um, a lot of that has to do with potash, which is produced in the Ukraine, Belarus, Russian region. Um, which is a major input into fertilizer of growing food. Uh, because the price is escalated, a lot of poor countries who produce rice are cutting back on their fertilizer use dramatically. And over half of humankind lives on rice. So there is a distinct risk that the, and as a farmer, I kind of understand that um, if the usage of fertilizer falls dramatically, well, the crop output is going to fall dramatically. Right. So rice is a serious problem. Uh, Future supply of wheat is a huge problem because uh, wheat, wheat production and the, the putting in the ground of the new wheat crop is being seriously um, 
discommoded in Ukraine at yes. the moment. So there's a distinct risk that over the coming months, we're going to see a more significant escalation in food price inflation. And I think that's when it becomes a real problem for governments. It's one thing, energy costs rising. And I guess the impact of rising energy costs um, is being ameliorated by the fact that we're coming into summer, um, whether yes. it gets warmer, you know, energy use um, falls in any event. Yes. Uh, but food could become the real political issue. And of course, the Arab Spring was caused by initially by an escalation in food prices in the uh, relevant countries. So uh, you'd have to say, Eamon, in a nutshell, you know, the world economy is in an extremely uncertain place at the moment. And within that, central banks are in a really difficult place in terms of how much tightening of interest rates they are going to impose. Because the, the risk is, of course, that to bring inflation back under control, central banks will have to force recession. Right. Let me ask you a final question, Jim, that, well, it's a fact. Apparently, it's impossible to get people to work because shops and uh, pubs, bars, restaurants, everybody says they can't get staff. And some businesses on the high street are having to close because they can't get staff. Where does that particular fact fit into anything? What gives rise to that? Uh, we have effectively, according to these people who can't find workers, full employment. What's, yeah, what's the, the, is there an yeah. anomaly there? Yeah, that this, this is indicative as well of the very unusual global situation we have. Um, in the United States, unemployment is down at 3.8% of yeah. the labor force. Um, many sectors like hospitality, retail, etc., are finding it incredibly difficult to find labor. Um, Europe is not anything like the same extent, but there's some sector shortages. I mean, what's, what's happening there is, well, there's a, there's a number of things happening. Um, you know, a, a lot of workers were let go from sectors that were effect, affected by restrictions, particularly in the hospitality and the retail sector. Um, some actually retired. They decided yep. to opt out of the workforce. Um, others went and sought alternative employment and, you know, working in retail and hospitality uh, is a top job yes. in terms of uh, unsocial working hours and so on. So th there's been, and I, and I guess this is the, the great resignation that people talk about. Um, here in Ireland, and, and, and this is where, and this is a question that I'm really struggling with at the moment. I mean, the economic momentum in Ireland is still very, very strong. Yes. Uh, the export performance in the first quarter, exports were up by 29.5%, really strong. The public finances up to the end of April are still showing very strong growth in tax revenues, which is an indication of um, a strong economy. The unemployment rate is down at 4.8% of the labour force, which is close to full employment. Um, at the end of last year, and we get the, at the end of last year, there was two and a half million people working in the economy. Uh, Thursday of this week, we're going to get the date of the first quarter of this year, but I would expect a further increase in employment. So a record level of employment. So, and consumer spending is still reasonably strong, but consumer 
conference and business conference has tanked. So at this juncture, the Irish economy is still showing good momentum. Um, but the question, of course, is that how long can the Irish economy remain immune to those very worrying global forces that we've spoken about? And in terms of the labour market shortage, um, I think Ireland is a microcosm of what's happening at a global level. You know, definitely a lot of people have opted out of various sectors and those sectors are finding it really difficult to recruit people again. But if you look at a sector like construction, um, there is a massive shortage of labour yes. at the moment. And, and on top of that, uh, there was data published late last week on the input costs for construction. Um, and some of the, the price increases con- the construction sector is facing are quite staggering. You know, precast concrete is up by 21.6%. Timber is up by 28.5%. Plumbing materials are up by 26.3%. So, the, and the concern here, of course, is that due to a shortage of labor and also due to r- massively, massive increases in input costs, it is going to be really difficult for uh, the construction sector to deliver the housing supply that is required. So that's just going to exacerbate a lot of those problems of housing supply. And just a final point, Jim, because young people now are not being encouraged to go for trades like plumbing, mm. electricians, and all of those jobs that are so important, and they're all doing third level and getting Mickey Mouse diplomas that... Uh, aren't worth the paper they're written on. That's another factor in this particular equation, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. Um, it, it has... Like become, a, a carpenter, for example. Uh, ah, yeah, it's, be, it's become deeply unfashionable to get yes. involved in the trades. Yeah. And in our society, people start to look down at yeah. people who get involved in the trades. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just think that uh, we really do need to refocus on ensuring that there is a sufficient, a sufficient supply of people into the trades. And, it, and it's all of those trades associated with the building sector. But it's also uh, the motor industry is having huge problems at the moment, um, recruiting mechanics and so on also. So everyone, uh, everyone uh, wants for, to wear a suit. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and, and for young people, if they want to make decent money, I'd seriously look at the trades at this juncture. Um, I, okay. I think... Um, you know, the law of economics, which one of the laws of economics would suggest that um, scarcity of supply means the price is going to rise. So <laughs> the, the wages that can be earned in those right. sectors. But, but we do need a, a, a change in mindset. As I say, it has become deeply unfashionable in recent years to get involved in those trades. Yeah. But believe me, the economy needs those trades. And without those trades, it will not function. Okay, Jim. We're very grateful to you, Jim. Power is one of our finest uh, economists, is one of the most respected. I should reference again uh, his report compiled for the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers. It's about the Irish uh, private rental market. It is a fascinating read, and rarely, because most economists can't write, you can actually read it. We're grateful to Jim, uh, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.